I titled the sermon today, Our Good and Avenging God. Those things go together. In fact, you'll see they're inseparable. You can't separate these two realities of our God. They are one reality of him. They are what uh, fills out his attribute of godness, as it were. So Nahum is our, is our book today. And uh, let me just, before we dive into the verses themselves, let me give you a bit of an overview of the minor prophets. There are 12 minor prophets. They are not minor because they're insignificant. They're minor because they're short. Um, the other four are major. They're long. They're bigger. And uh, if in your devotion time you've been reading through um, that portion of the scripture, you realize, man, when, when you move through like Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, these are massive books. And then you get into the minor prophets and you can just cruise right through. The challenge, however, is these are very difficult books to understand, right? I mean, each of these different guys is writing to a different audience and there's different circumstances and, and there's a whole lot of judgment, right? How do I apply that? The, 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 the judgment of, of Nineveh to my life today, how do I, how do, I do that? It's difficult. They're also very difficult to, uh, to, to figure out how to preach, to outline a, a, a minor prophet. It's a very challenging thing to, to do. Um, what's also fascinating as you study them is you find that they interact together. Some of these men are contemporaries as they write, and uh, some of them, like what we have here, have a part one and a part two. Uh, years ago, I preached through the book of Jonah here, and so if you want the, the prequel, as it were, you can go back on our website and listen to those sermons. They're not on our YouTube because we didn't video back then, but the audio is all there, and I would recommend those to you. But Jonah is part one of God's dealing with Nineveh, with Assyria, the, the, the empire of Assyria. Nahum is part two. In part one, they repent. In part two, they are absolutely destroyed, okay? So in order to really appreciate the book of Nahum, you've got to really kind of move through Jonah first and you get some context. Here's a bit of a timeline. Um, this is helpful because when you drop into a book like this, you need to ask the question, who am I? Where am I? What's the situation? What's the problem? What's the solution? What, what's gonna happen? And this gives us a little balance as we drop into Nahum. In 760 or so BC, the 760 years before Christ, okay, Jonah was sent by God to Nineveh, and he went excitedly, didn't he, kids, right? Jonah was like, I can't believe you chose me to go to Nineveh. That's awesome. No, he did not. He hated the Assyrians with a passion. He did not want to go and preach a sermon to them. He went the opposite direction, in fact, and God stuck him in a whale, spit him on the land, and by chapter three, he had agreed to go. He went to Nineveh, preached a very short sermon, and the Lord saved the Ninevites. Unbelievable. He, would, he, would just, he had just started preaching, and the king turned from his sins and, and repented in dust and ashes and called everyone in his kingdom, turn from your sins, or or the Lord will destroy us. And, and if we turn and we repent, maybe he'll relent of his anger. And the Lord did relent from what he had said he would do to Nineveh. So amazing grace is shown to this godless pagan nation in that moment. It did not last long. 
It did not last long, if you look through history. In fact, in 740, Isaiah begins to prophesy, and you don't make it far into Isaiah before you realize that Assyria is ransacking Israel. Now they're doing this by the hand of God himself, who took uh, the Assyrian Empire, which was really kind of fading at that point, grabbed a hold of it, strengthened it, and then employed them as the rod of his discipline on his chosen people, the Israelites especially on the 10 tribes of the north that made up the northern kingdom. And in 722 BC, the Assyrians took the north, hauled off everyone from the north, dispersed them, and guess what? They never returned. The north had fallen. This was at the hand of the Assyrians. It was a a horrific discipline of God for the people's rebellion and paganism and idolatry. He brought them to pieces. In 701, Sennacherib, you may have recognized that name, he's very renowned in Assyrian and world history, he strengthened Assyria mightily, and he came into the southern kingdom, which is known as Judah. We call that Judah. It's not just an area or a dude in Genesis. It's the name of the, of the region and the southern kingdom of Israel uh, the two tribes that were faithful, more, at least more faithful to the Lord, and Sennacherib destroyed 46 cities. Lachish, which we got to go and stand on the mountain, like I got pottery in my office from Lachish, right? Sennacherib absolutely buried that city with military might. He came and he surrounded and besieged Jerusalem. You remember this exchange in Isaiah chapter 10? The taunting and on down the line, Hezekiah the king at that time, he had issues, right? He was not always uh, making good decisions, but in this moment, he made the right decision. He prayed. He entreated the Lord, oh Lord, please, for the glory of your name, defend us. Turn this man back. And that night, the Lord answered the prayer of Hezekiah, just as the prophet Isaiah had said, And the angel of the Lord, not an angel of the Lord, the angel of the Lord was sent out. That is the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ. The son goes out with a sword and struck down 185,000 Assyrian soldiers. So when morning came, dead bodies of this military might were everywhere. They struck them dead in their sleep. And Sennacherib went home, just as the Lord said, through the prophet Isaiah. He said, I'm gonna, I'm gonna put a, a, a ring in your nose and drag you home, and he did. He did. When he got home, his sons raised up and killed him and took his throne. That's how Sennacherib went down. A number of years later, Nahum begins to write. Okay, so 650, maybe 640, somewhere in there is when Nahum begins to write. So this is the, the setting, this is the picture. It's bleak. And Assyria has continued to to exert dominance and and then Hezekiah was foolish and he gave them a bunch of gold and silver and they exact taxes every year. And I mean, it's it's oppression from the Assyrian Empire. Nineveh is going to be destroyed, Nahum writes. We're we're gonna look at that over the next week and and next week. Um, In 612, this prophecy was totally fulfilled. God raised up the Babylonians, the Medes, uh, and the the Scythians uh, as well. It was kind of a coalition of armies that came together from down around Baghdad 
area, and they came up to Mosul, which is where Nineveh is located, just across the Tigris River from where Mosul is modern day, and they absolutely destroyed Nineveh. They turned it into a heap, and you know, they destroyed it so thoroughly through the hand of God, right, that Nineveh was lost until it was dug up in 1846. Think of this. This is the great city of Nineveh. No one knew where it was for all those years. That's how complete God's prophecy was fulfilled. So that's a little anticipation of what we're going to see next week as well. But uh, this is the big picture, and it's helpful for us as we go into the verses. So let's go to verse 1 in uh, Nahum chapter 1. Context and comfort. Context and comfort. Verse 1, an oracle concerning Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum of, Elka, uh, of Elkosh. Now, we don't know where that is. Um, it, it's, it's just like the Lord to call a man to be a prophet to bring a message like this from a no-name town, right? No one really knows where this was, and I imagine no one really, really knew much about Nahum. But then when he wrote a book, the word began to spread. What's interesting about this, look at this. It's an oracle, it's a vision, and it's a book. All three of these. This is unique for Nahum. Very different than the rest of the minor prophets. A lot of the other prophets had sermons, and they would go and proclaim. And and sometimes their, their, their books are kind of collections of sermons put together. What's, what's different about this uh, in Nahum is that he received an oracle, which is a, a message of woe concerning a foreign nation, a message of judgment. It's a, a formal indictment of judgment. It's coming. It's an oracle. He also received a vision. He anticipated and wrote out what God had given his mind to see would take place in Nineveh. But that he wrote a book is amazing. The writing of Nahum is on par with the writing of Isaiah. Isaiah is one of the highest forms of Old Testament writing, poetic and, and complete and, and using illusion and all those things. Nahum is right with him there. It's poetic. He uses illusion in all kinds of different ways and, and these really glorious phrases that are concise and short and punchy. And as glorious as it is, it's all about destruction and judgment. This would have been Assyria at its high point. This is the, the, the pinnacle of Assyrian power is when Nahum began to write. So just imagine how literally unbelievable it would be to read this book from Nahum. It, 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 would, have been, it would have been inconceivable for people to believe that he was telling the truth, that this was truly what God was going to do. Well, it was true, and it's what God did. Nineveh is the target of all of this, modern-day Mosul, Iraq. It's on the east side, so Mosul is on the west side of the Tigris. If you cross the river, right there is where Nineveh was and sprawling. It is the capital of the Assyrian Empire, um, built up massively and fortified by Sennacherib. He wanted a fortress like none other, and he accomplished that. Um, the city of Nineveh, believe it or not, was, is, is one of the oldest cities on earth. It was founded by uh, Nimrod. Remember Nimrod? He's the guy that 
did the whole Babel bit. He built Babel, the city of Babel, and uh, he also then went up into Assyria and built Nineveh. So you can track Nineveh to the great-grandson of Noah, right? That's how old we're talking this city is. Genesis chapter 10, verses 8 through 11 are the, the first mention of Nineveh. It's the largest and most impressive city of its time by a long shot, massively fortified and sprawling, such that when Jonah entered it to proclaim judgment, he said it was exceedingly great as a city, three days' journey in breadth. Think of that. Now, the city in this day would have walls, and inside the walls would be the most important things, but outside the walls, largely, would be surrounding peoples, sprawling, sprawling city. So farmers and, and, and shopkeepers and all of the support structure, that's all outside the wall. They run inside the wall when there's a threat. Jonah is making his way across this sprawling metropolis, and he's overwhelmed with a massive amount of people in this city. That was back then. Think now how even bigger the city was in its fortifications here is what they are digging up a modern day. There's a lot of work going on now to try to uncover Nineveh. <laughs> it's buried in dirt. Isn't that classic? God took the, the glory of this man-made structure and he, they just put it under a pile of dirt. Um, here's some of the fortress uh, wall that you can see, the outside wall. I'll give you a little video so you can have a bird's eye view of the city imprint. It's still, to this day, it's just massive. Okay, here's a few details about this as you watch this overview. It was a double-walled city. The interior wall was 100 feet high. Three chariots could race on it before it goes past. Note the moat. There's a moat all the way around the city, 100 feet, 150 feet wide, 60 feet deep. Okay, so you don't get into that city with anything unless they want you to. Um, on the wall, three chariots could race side by side around the city. It had 1,200 military installation towers and uh, 1,400 gates, including river gates that could open and close and allow in and protect. Uh, we're talking massive structure. Um, the wealth inside was renowned. There's literature that speaks of this massive wealth, gold, silver, copper, ivory, cypress, horses galore, chariots, camels, uh, the palace itself, as you saw at the end there, was an 80-room palace, okay? And that was one of two palaces, one on the north side and one on the south side. There's a mosque down on the south side, that, so they can't excavate or do any digging down there. It's all uh, off limits. So they're doing the dig on the north side of the city, and that's where they're finding a lot of these things. So suffice to say, this city would have seemed in its day absolutely invincible, impenetrable. It was the world power, the capital, and it was stunning and glorious. Look at the gardens and the pools. They had uh, all these rivers and aqueducts. 25 miles of aqueducts fed the city with fresh water as it needed. So there's our history lesson for the day. Nineveh was mind-blowing in its grandeur. Nahum, his name means comfort, and the audience of this little letter is Judah in the south. He's writing to encourage them and to give them hope. Okay, so let's move on now. Verse 2, 
beholding our glorious, our glorious God. Let's behold him together. The, the Lord, this is Yahweh, the Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath or stores wrath for his enemies. Wow. Okay. We've got to put that in a song. How many songs that we sing or that, we've, that you've ever heard sing about that? This is his glory, my friends. We live in a day that has largely stiff-armed these realities of our God. A, a day that, that doesn't want to hear about how God is a jealous and avenging God. These are true of God, and they are part of his glory. It's one of the reasons we worship God. In a day where it's all about justice, we want justice for this and justice for this, and no justice, no peace, Right, All of this talk about justice, social justice, environmental justice, criminal justice. You would think that at the time when the focus is on justice that people would begin to say, we want divine justice. But rather than that, they say, no, we don't believe that, that hell exists. That doesn't square with who we think God is. He's a uh, a kind and gentle and loving God. There's no way he would send someone to hell for eternity. So no, there's no hell. No, God is not up there just di di uh, dispersing lightning bolts on people. No, he is a, a loving and gentle and kind God. He is a loving and gentle and kind God. But he is also a God who is jealous, avenging, and wrathful. How do we make sense of these things? Well, we'd listen to his self-disclosure in his word. If you want to know who God is, then listen to his voice as he proclaims who he is in his word. Jealous, avenging, and wrathful have everything to do with love and righteousness. If God loves, then he must be jealous for his bride. A husband who cares nothing for his wife, who is teetering on an affair with a threat, a, a man who would seek to steal her heart away, a man who is not stirred in jealousy in that moment is a man who does not love his wife. It's an indifferent man, a cold-hearted man. A man who loves his wife will rise to that moment and say, absolutely not, you leave. We here, we have a covenant bond. We are together till death do us part. God in his love is stirred to jealousy. He is stirred to anger. And in his righteousness, he pours out wrath. That is part of his glory. So you can't take one and leave the other. God says, this is who I am. God's wrath, here's a definition for you. God's wrath is his chosen fury. Now, I, I, in, I just wanted to make this so clear. It is not a fury that overcomes him and he loses all control. God is never out of control. He is never, as the song says, reckless. He's not reckless. God is choosing the appropriate response to the evil that's committed. And it is a chosen fury. 
that righteously burns and then moves. Precisely, not, not just randomly or, or sloppily. He moves precisely in his chosen fury in just, that is righteous, and retribution. So it's just retribution, which the word retribution means it's the punishment that fits the crime. He doesn't over-punish, and he will never under-punish. So, friends, if God reveals in his word that hell lasts forever, what does it tell us about the offense of sin? That's what we should be concluding. Not erasing hell, but saying, woe is me, I am a sinner. How serious my sin is. And if you doubt that, then look at the cross and say, if our sin was no big deal, then why the cross? Why was it so horrible for Jesus the night he was betrayed? Long before the suffering of the physical, the, the Lord poured wrath on his son and he felt that weight on the cross in its fullness. God's wrath is his chosen fury that righteously burns and moves precisely in just retribution against all human and angelic wickedness. The lake of fire will be filled with those who have rebelled against the sovereign God and received the due punishment, what is deserved, fitting, right, and unending in the fires of hell. May no one in this room find themselves there. The door is open today. There is a way out. If your God has no wrath, no outrage over evil, no anger towards injustice, then either you simply do not know or not, are not willing to accept the God of the Bible. That's the reality. And if that's the case, then there is no end to the things you can manufacture and come up with. Oh, how many times over the years as a pastor I've heard people say, well, the God I worship is like this. And I like to think of God like this. No, none of that matters. What matters is, thus saith the Lord, this is who I am. He has spoken who he is. We worship him or we worship an idol. He is a God of wrath. The Lord is slow to anger, Nahum goes on. He says he's slow to anger and great in power. The Lord will by no means clear the guilty. Sometimes people think of God as this grandpa, just this really nice grandpa God that's just like, oh, you cute little kids, you disobeyed me again. Here's 10 bucks, go on out and keep having fun. It's no big deal. Is that, is that who our God is? This is part of the brilliance of his writing here. Nahum is addressing what God revealed to Moses in Exodus when he passed by and proclaimed his name. A God of steadfast love. He's slow to anger and great in power and, and, and he shows mercy and kindness to many but he will not leave the guilty uh, or clear the guilty and then he even says in Exodus he visits the sins of the father and the third and fourth generation. Well, what does that mean? It doesn't mean that their pain or having to pay for the sins of their grandfather. It means the consequences of grandpa's sin harm me. If I rob a bank and I get caught and I go to jail, I'm not in the home. My kids and their kids are affected. He's slow to anger. Sometimes we get stuck there. 
We just wish that the Lord would just drop a lightning bolt or open up the ground and swallow them up. Just, I mean, we can do that, right? Lord, I know you've done this. Maybe it would be a good time to just do that now. It's not right. They got away with it. And oh, the danger of going down this road. Well, maybe he doesn't know. Maybe, maybe he just doesn't know of what's happening here. Or maybe he can't stop it. Maybe he sees it and he's like, guys, I wish I could do something, but I can't. I'm powerless. Never conclude his slowness to anger means his inability to deal with evil. Hmm. God is slow to anger, but he is not lacking in anger. Slow to anger does not mean that he lacks anger. It means he keeps it, he stores it, and then he pours it out in his all-wise and sovereign timing. He will not clear the guilty. They will pay. And I just have to say here, one of the things we have to catch is our inclination to want a quickness of God to anger when we look around, right? Lord, just zap them. Will you just knock them down? Just take them out. Just, and, 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 but when it comes to us, we're like, let's go with the slow to anger, right? We, we prefer that path. How we learn from God of his kindness and compassion. It says he's slow to anger. He, he delights not in the death of the wicked, but, but that sinners would be saved, and he gives opportunity for repentance. He, he withholds his wrath. He stores it up. It's his kindness that holds it back. But make no mistake, it will come. And when that wrath is poured out, wave after wave of wrath, it will destroy all rebellion. His way is in the whirlwind and the storm, lest we doubt his power. The clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He, he dries up the rivers. The exodus, right? The crossing of the sea. He, he, uh, he, where am I? He, he makes this, uh, rebukes the sea, makes it dry, dries up the rivers, even the, the Jordan River as they entered in the, in the conquest. Bashan and Carmel wither. The bloom of Lebanon withers. The mountains quake before him. The hills melt. The earth heaves before him, the world and all who dwell in it. Who can stand before his indignation? Who? Who could ever stand before the God of wrath? Who can endure the heat of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire and rocks are broken into pieces by him. You think you stand on something sure? You think your fortress is impenetrable? Then you have failed to account for the God of all power. Listen to how Isaiah spoke of this. I am the Lord and there is no other, God says. I form light and I create darkness. I make well-being and I create calamity. I am the Lord. No earthly king does this. I am the Lord who does all these things. I made the earth and created man on it. That's a reference to last week. You see, it's everywhere. It's all over your Bible. 
It was my hands, God says, that stretched out the heavens, and I command all their host. So, my friends, I ask the question. We speak of these things as if somehow God is not involved. We say, well, that was just a, a, a natural disaster. I want you to watch roofs being hurled hundreds of feet into the air. Pretty soon, an entire house is going to be thrown down here in the, in the bottom right. This is the finger of our God. He is in the storm. That tornado destroys and ruins and kills as his finger guides it. This is not a godless thing. This is a God thing. What is God doing in the act? He is judging, he is revealing, he is calling, he is saving all, it's probably a million things he's doing. And in this, he's preaching. He is God. There is no tsunami, no hurricane, no tornado that has ever fallen, no, no earthquake, no flood, no, no any natural disaster, as we say it. They are all the act of God. And they all reveal his strength and power, and they should humble us before him and call us to repentance. This world is broken and reeling under the effects of our sin, and reminders of this should call us to repentance constantly. Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket, and are cons they are counted as dust on the scales. Behold, he takes or he lifts up the coastlands like fine dust. Right? When was the last time you dusted a shelf? You took your hand off there, you see the dust, and you're like, oh, it's too heavy. I can't hold that dust. No, what do you do? Well, maybe you go outside first. Then you, you blow it off your hand. It's not hard to do that, is it? That's what God says he can do with the coastlands, the peoples. It's, he is not like us. He is God. Oh, the arrogance and the pride in mankind that would rise up and think that somehow we could defy him without consequence. He is the empire crusher. There has never been an empire that has made God nervous or concerned. Psalm 2, read it when you get home, Psalm 2. He who sits in the heavens laughs at the raging of the nations. There's no concern or dread in God. He can crush you, that's what he's saying. He can crush you if he so pleases. And, he is the defender of his people. So, if you ask the question, do you want to be on team Nineveh or do you want to be on team God? I'm going with God all day long. That's, in a sense, what Nahum is saying. He is coming to our defense. Judah, be encouraged. Take hope. He sees, he knows, he is able, and he comes. He will squash the Assyrians who tread upon you. A day of reckoning is coming, friends. It came for the Assyrians in 612 B.C. 
Friends, I fear that there may be already a day of reckoning coming against the United States. I fear that we as a nation are in eclipse. And we have to get our minds right about this. The idea that somehow we're just going to usher in some gloriously bright and awesome kingdom of God, uh, that's make-believe eschatology. This world is getting darker. It's getting worse. Now, we want to stand. Yes, absolutely. We want to vote. We want to shine. We want to try to influence. We want human flourishing. Absolutely. But friends, we are the minority. And we will increasingly feel this in the days ahead. Our nation is turning their back against God. There are consequences for that that we feel today already. Wave after wave of wrath is already being poured out on our nation. And there is, I believe, more to come. Unless, oh, by the grace of God in his kindness and his slowness to anger, he turned things back for a season. It will only be a season if that. So pray. Pray for Simon. Praise God that he won. He's a man of God. He shines bright. We need more people like Simon in the legislature, in Olympia. We need more of those. But that is not the hope of our nation, is it? Jesus is the hope of the nation, of every sinner on the face of the earth. Good work, Simon. Refuge or retribution. Verse 7 and 8, this is the theme of the entire book of Nahum. Refuge or retribution. Here we go. The Lord is good. I love how that flows just right out of the last bit. Right? We're talking vengeance, wrath, jealousy. The Lord is good. He is a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him, but... With an overflowing flood, he will make a complete end of the adversaries and will pursue his enemies into the dark. What an image that is. Repentance and refuge or rebellion and ruin. That's the choice. Life or death. What's it going to be? The, the, the message is the same today, friends. Repent. Turn from sin and Humble yourself before the God of righteousness and holiness. Find safety and shelter in his son or you will be ruined by his wrath forever. His grace and mercy have made a way for the likes of us, enemies of God, to be made family of God. He will pursue his enemies into darkness. I think of a, a battle taking place and maybe the, the losing army just has a few folks left and, and they begin to flee into like a, a valley where it's already dark and, and the soldiers on the winning army are like, oh man, I, I don't want to go in there. It's probably a trap. They're probably waiting for an ambush. And here comes the Lord. Without any hesitation, sword drawn, he disappears into the dark. He is not afraid. He is not hesitating. He will hunt them down and destroy everyone. You want to be on his side. Is he safe? Here's a C.S. Lewis rewrite. When Lucy asks about the lion, Aslan, is he safe? Here's a better response, I would say. 
He is good. He is good, right? And he is safe, but only for those who fear him. Think of how important that reality is. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. He is safe for those who fear him. He is the end of all who rail against him and rebel against him. The lion has teeth. He is not a kitty. He is a crusher of nations. And he will come. The righteous avenger will come. Verses 9 through 11 and 14. I want to explain what I did here. Verse 12, just out of the blue. I love how Nahum does this. All of a sudden, he's talking to Judah, right? So I moved verse 12 down to uh, verses uh, 15 and, 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 and 13 to put them together so that the flow will be smooth here. Listen to how this goes. We're still addressing Assyria. Why do you plot against the Lord? He will make a complete end. Trouble will not rise up a second time. Basically, he's saying, he's going to end you, Assyria. You're going to be completely obliterated. For they are like entangled thorns. Their, Their military tries to run around. They can't even move. They're like drunkards as they drink. They're stumbling all over themselves. They're they're consumed like stubble, fully dried. It's going to be fast. This is not a slow thing. God is going to completely smash the Assyrians in Nineveh. From you, Nineveh, came one who plotted plotted evil against the Lord, a worthless counselor. I think this is probably Sennacherib, who mocked God's people and mocked the Lord openly. This is the Lord bringing wrath The Lord has given his commandment about you. This is the word. No more shall your name be perpetuated. Think of that. (laughs) Like, done. Assyria, that's it. You're gone. From the house of your gods, I will cut off the carved image and the metal image. I will make your grave for you are vile. You think your gods are going to save you? I will humiliate your gods like I humiliated the gods of Egypt. There is no God but the God who is. Total destruction foretold. They might say, yeah, but, but you don't understand, Nahum. We've got this king, he is mighty, he is powerful, we're proud of him. He has won military campaign after military campaign. We place hope in him. Shouldn't do it. But we have our dominant army, we're, we're successful. Everybody who's fought against us has lost. We rule the world. Don't look to your army. But we have our walls and our defenses. This city is as old as as Noah almost. You're telling us that this city's going to get squashed? I don't think so. We trust our fortress here in Nineveh. Bad decision. We have our overflowing riches. We can buy people off. We'll just just buy off the armies. It's not going to work. But we have our gods. We have our gods, our carved idols that we bow to and worship, and they, they will help us. And it's as if God, all he has to say is this, I am. I am. What do you mean, gods? (laughs) How silly. You mean the little trinkets? They're going to be buried in mud 
for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. No one's even going to remember where you live. I'm coming. You do not want to be in Nineveh. Lastly, covenant, uh, confidence and covenant love. Verses 12 and 13 and 15. Confidence and covenant love. Thus says the Lord, though they, the Assyrians, are at full strength and many, they will be cut down and pass away. This is encouragement to Judah. Though they are at full strength, think of this, They've never been bigger, never been stronger, never been more intimidating, and that's exactly the time when I want to show what I can do. I will cut them down. And then he says this to Judah, though I have afflicted you, my people, I will afflict you no more. And now I will break his yoke, Assyria's yoke, from off of you and burst your bonds apart. Oh, the oppression they experienced, even down in Judah, was intense. It was intense. And God promises to to break their bonds apart. He says, though I have afflicted you, I will afflict you no more. What is that? Well, it points us to the discipline of Israel and then the eventual destruction of Assyria. God used Assyria to discipline his people. And he did so over a long period of time. And it was violent. And they suffered great loss. And God says, I will discipline you no more. Listen to the heart of God from Hosea. When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. The more they were called, oh, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning offerings to idols. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them up by their arms. Think of a father with a a son whose arms, he lifts him up and he's walking him around. You can see this imagery. But they did not know that it was I who healed them. I led them with cords of kindness and bands of love. I became to them as one who eases the yoke on their jaws, and I bent down to them and fed them. This is tender, patient kindness to a rebellious and idolatrous son. So the discipline falls. They shall not return to the land of Egypt, but Assyria shall be their king because they have refused to return to me. The sword shall rage against their cities and consume the bars of their gates and devour them because of their own decisions, their own counsels. This is what they chose. They turned their back on the God who loves. Hmm. Now, in Isaiah, he turns to Assyria and says these words, Ah, or woe to Assyria, the rod of my anger, the staff in their hands is my fury, God says. When the Lord has finished all his work on Mount Zion and on Jerusalem, he will punish the speech of the arrogant heart of the king of Assyria and the boastful look in his eyes. For he says, by the strength of my hand, And uh, I have done it by my wisdom, for I have understanding I remove the boundaries of peoples and plunder their treasures like a bull. I bring down those who sit on thrones. This is what happened. 
Assyria became arrogant and began to think that all the glory and the, and the work of their conquest and military might was doing, owing to them and, and not God. And so God said, I'm gonna punish the punisher. Whom have you mocked and reviled? Against whom, king of Assyria, have you raised your voice and lifted your eyes to the heights? Against the Holy One of Israel. Now think how amazing this is. Only a sovereign God can raise up a foreign pagan nation to become the the rod of his discipline on his people who have rebelled against him and then in turn punish them for their evil and wickedness. That's God level stuff, man. We can't figure that out. We We can't do that. But God can. And he did. He could do it in our day as well. Don't think that he may not raise up some foreign army to bring punishment and wickedness. It can happen. Now verse 15, the comfort and hope to Judah. Behold, upon the mountains the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace. Oh, Judah, keep your feasts. Fulfill your vows for Never again shall the worthless pass through you. He is utterly cut off. There's no more Assyrians that are going to be coming and and razzing your cities and, and destroying your farm and killing your people. I'm going to kill them. This anticipates the day when news would come to Judah. 612 B.C. There was a man probably running who came from this part of the, uh, of, of the world. He came running into the land of Judah and he had good news. And he announced peace. Our oppressor has been put down. We do not have to fear the Assyrians ever again. And they didn't. Confidence in the promise of God. Friends, that kind of confidence is the confidence we can have even in a godless and increasingly dark world. It's going to be difficult, yes, but there is coming a day when there will be no more evildoer in the land. The king will be on his throne, we will be face to face with him, and there will be no fear, no dread, no sin, new heaven and new earth. Our response this morning, just a few thoughts here. Number one, rest and rejoice in our good and avenging God. It's not enough to say, well, okay, fine, that's who he is, but I don't have to like it. That's not enough. The call is rest in it. You don't have to fear it. You can find shelter and rest in it, and you can rejoice in it because his vengeance is on our behalf, and he defends his name. Maybe in this life we won't see justice served. It might be that that will come years later but it will come, it will come. And that is our confidence, just as Judah knew, it will come. The reality is is that God can wield the evildoer to discipline his people, and at the very same time, God will punish every evildoer for every evil deed. No one gets away with anything. There's never a sin committed that will not be paid for. For the believers, the cross is where all of our sins have been paid. Remember that rebelling against God brings eternal ruin and wrath, 
If you're here today and you walked into this room and you are not looking to Jesus as your hope alone in this life and the next, turning from your sin in humility and repentance, then today is the day. I just would call you, don't wait. Don't presume upon the patience and the slowness to anger of our God. If you are not finding shelter in Jesus Christ, you are an enemy of God today and his wrath is stored against you and it may fall. None of us knows how long we will live. So number three, repent of sin and run into the fortress. You want a fortress? You want a Nineveh that is impenetrable? Then you need Jesus Christ. The fortress of God's love has an entrance and there's only one gate and his name is Jesus Christ. He is the one to look to. Place your faith in him. Turn from sin. Embrace him as Savior, Lord, treasure, and hope and you will find a fortress that will never fail. And you will have a father in heaven forever. Let's pray. Oh God, we thank you for the way that you've chosen to forgive sinners like me and everyone here in this room. Grace and kindness, mercy and just benevolence that that is set upon to the ends of the earth, Lord. This, This salvation that you have come and brought to us through your son Jesus, it's it's mind blowing and undeserved. We thank you as well that you are a God of justice, that you see and you store, and someday, if not soon, you will pour out your wrath and every evildoer will answer. Father, we do thank you indeed that there is a place where sinners who rail against you and hurt people and do horrible things in this world where those people pay for their sins and their offenses. Thank you for being a just God. Oh God, at the same time, who are we? That's what we deserve. And so we thank you for the grace we've received and we long to take that grace and that good news and extend it to the ends of the earth. Oh Father, find us faithful as we live in dark days. Help us to shine bright, to show love, to to point people to the refuge that you have given in Jesus Christ. May we delight in you from that place and wait for you as justice falls and all is made right. We long for the day when Jesus will reign and Satan will be in the lake of fire and sin will be no more and no evildoer will be in the land at all and our king will be all glorious. Until that day, Lord, please help us, help us to honor you as we worship you. In Jesus' name, amen.